Hello everybody, welcome back to IntelliGame Radio. I'm your host, Josh Boykin, founder of IntelliGame.us, a community where we make connections between games and the real world. Now, I will admit, my first impulse is, find something else to talk about! But we're all thinking about the same thing a lot lately. Coronavirus. Quarantine. The introvert in me is helping me handle some of these situations better than I anticipated. Spending time in my basement or playing video games is not unfamiliar to me. But I can also admit that I see some of these residual effects building up too. I feel like I'm losing energy here and there. I'm not as chatty on the phone. I also spent a couple nights binge-watching Neon Genesis Evangelion. I mean, I'd planned to watch it for a while, but I do tend to binge TV when my mental health isn't exactly on point. I think some of this is starting to affect other people around me, too. If the novelty has started to wear off for those who found the idea of staying inside novel, I can only imagine what it's like for the people where this has been stressful for them from the beginning. Extroverts out there, my heart goes out. Now, odds are, there's not going to be a point where things go exactly back to the way that they were before all of this. But I think we can still reflect on the things that we enjoy from the past and use those ideas to shape our concepts and hopes for the future. Now, in that spirit, I've been digging through some of my old work, thinking actually about the various iterations of this very show. So for this episode, we're going to dig through the crates a little bit. This episode is Flashback. I'm going to re-air three segments from the last season of IntelliGame Radio, back when I made it short form and had multiple episodes a week. The first piece is going to be about setting intention, and the ways that creating a specific mindset can help you feel more successful in what you're trying to accomplish in both the short and long run. Second is about the power of platform, the ways that we need to recognize the influence that we have on the people around us, and the ways that we can use that influence for the benefit of everyone. Third, we're going to learn about small community seeing some of the ways that focused communities can create ripple effects that result in big changes through the whole system. I will then go ahead and wrap us up with a game recommendation as Jenny is off this week. Anyway, as usual, if you have questions, comments, or suggestions, shoot them over to me at josh at intelligame.us. Again, that's josh at intelligame.us. Thank you so much for joining. Let's go ahead and get started. Alright, so our first flashback segment rewinds to 2018, Pixel Pop in St. Louis, one of my favorite regional shows. At this particular time, I was lucky to be able to walk the floor with a buddy of mine, Mikkel Snyder, who currently writes for Black Nerd Problems and has written a couple of pieces for Intelligame. He also was previously an Intelligame moderator. Now, I will admit that sometimes I get a little competitive in ways that I don't feel like I totally should. And this piece talks a bit about that reflexive competitive mindset and how I think that there are more situations that I'd be better in if I consciously chose a mindset before getting started. Now, as a precursor to all three of these pieces, Intelligame Radio A used to be a little bit more off the cuff and B, 
in many cases was recorded on a smartphone. So you're going to hear some varying audio quality from segment to segment. But I have done what I can to polish these pieces up a little bit. I hope you appreciate the slightly improved audio quality. Games provide us tons of different opportunities to interact with the world around us. Perhaps we want to play something competitively or cooperatively with a friend. Perhaps we want to dive into a story in an RPG. Perhaps we want to learn about somebody else's experience in an alt game. There are so many different types of experiences that we can extract from this broad category of what we consider games. And even within the same game, there can be different experiences that we take from those too. If we're playing Overwatch, are we using this multiplayer shooter as an opportunity to just kind of cool down at the end of a long day? Or as a way to chat with friends who we might not get to chat with as often? Or maybe we're playing because we want to become professional or competitive and we need to train. All of these different situations can apply to the exact same game. This is why it's important to be able to set intention for your time. Here on Intelligame Radio, I've talked at least a couple of times about the idea of setting goals. Concrete objectives that you want to reach during your gameplay sessions. Like getting a certain number of levels spending a certain amount of time in-game. It's helpful because it can steer your actions to be a little more efficient, and also let you know, perhaps, when it's time to stop. But I also think that there's a benefit to something a little bit more abstract, and that's setting intention for a session. I've been particularly thinking about this after a gameplay session at Pixel Pop with Mikkel Snyder, whose name you may recognize from... Here on Intelligame, he wrote a piece on Destiny, but also from Black Nerd Problems, where he writes over there in handling comic reviews. We played a game called Sententable, which is an experimental project by Amanda Throws Rocks. You can learn more about it at buttonsr.cool. This was a 2D fighter where a hundred buttons were involved. This table had a hundred arcade-style buttons split down the middle, into 50 buttons a piece per player. And it's a typical 2D fighter, so your goal is to knock out your opponent, but every round, each of those 50 buttons is randomized. And they're not just attacks or blocks, they also would do interesting on-screen effects, like create a sort of honeycomb effect on the screen, or make it look like broken glass. Considering you have 50 randomized buttons every round, it's kind of hard to come up with a strategy. Mikkel took the approach of just randomly hitting buttons to see what happens. I, on the other hand, was trying to come up with a system, smack some buttons until I thought I could find something consistent, and then be able to repeat that consistency. Now, my strategy didn't work out as well as I would have hoped. But where I think that setting an intention before playing the game would have been beneficial is that maybe I would have tweaked my strategy a bit. After the first couple rounds, uh, he won one, I won one, uh, there was a, a little bit of smack talking that I think I perhaps took a little too personally. So I committed to this idea of being able to find this successful strategy of analysis. And in the meantime, Mikkel just smashed a bunch of buttons. <laughs> whether, regardless of whether or not he won, which he did, 
to me, the experience of, of losing in this manner was really frustrating. And I carried some of that anger with me after I'd left the game. If I had set an intention before playing the game, if I'd had a general sense of, I'm just playing this game for the experience of learning about this interesting hundred button experiment, perhaps I would have lost a match and just been like, okay, I'm going to change my strategy. <laughs> and I would have just randomly hit buttons too. And regardless of whether I had won or lost, I might have had a better time. But instead of setting my own intention, my anger and my need to be right set my intention for me. Amanda ended up saying later on that they found that, well, an eight-year-old jumping on the table tends to beat adults, which means that the randomness strategy is likely the most effective. The randomness strategy also seems to kind of just buy into the experience that perhaps Sententable is meant to provide. It's not about being some sort of highly analytical player who can beat somebody all the time, but is just about providing an interesting experimental experience. I believe there are other games that Amanda has tried to put on this table as well, but I don't know a lot about those. I find that particularly when I'm on show floors, this idea of setting an intention is really helpful. At Game Devs of Color Expo, I specifically intended this year to play as many games as possible and just experience the atmosphere. Whereas last year I listened to a lot of talks, this year I knew if I set this idea at the beginning, I'm here to play games and to meet these creators. It'll help me to not feel so guilty about not sitting in the room listening to talks. Those are really beneficial, really informative sessions. But I'm only one person and can only be in so many places. The same thing applies when I'm playing games. When I'm playing casual games on my phone as an opportunity to cool down from the day or transition from one thing to another by setting that specific intention of I'm playing this game to cool down as opposed to I'm just randomly opening this game because it's a reflexive habit. It really makes it easier for me to close the game when I've satisfied whatever that drive is. Also, if I'm playing a competitive game like Overwatch, if I am setting that intention of I'm just here to spend time with my friends, it makes it easier for me to not get as bent out of shape if we're losing or not get as riled up if we're winning to focus on learning more about my friends and what their days were like or other pieces of information like that. I think generally setting intention is a healthy thing to do at the beginning of the day in general, but also at the beginning of any new situation, whether you're going to work or playing a game. It gives us an opportunity to guide our own experience through life and maybe not get as thrown off by those strange situations that come at us. I particularly think about that in terms of social media. And my recommendation there would be don't start your day with social media. It's just, it's just painful. Now, I will admit, I chose these pieces because I felt like there was an opportunity to find some golden information from the past and drop it into the present. 
for one, starting the day with social media is a terrible idea. It was a terrible idea then, and it's certainly a terrible idea now. But I do find that as I'm going through my day and trying to figure out how to stay motivated, also stay creatively energized, keep myself from overworking, setting an intention has been really helpful for that. I've got a new little time tracker that I use to help me stay on task and focused. And yeah, in general, I do think this is kind of evergreen information. I think our second piece also contains some of that evergreen knowledge as well. Specifically, when we start having discussions about the power we have to share information with others. If it was relevant back then, it's certainly relevant now, as everybody is scouring the internet to try and find information about how to make the best masks, where and when should people go out and spend time with other people, at what distances. It's not a novelty, it's about saving lives and keeping the people around us healthy. I think some of the ideas in this piece will still feel pretty relevant here in April of 2020, and beyond. Our second piece deals with the power of platform. And though we typically have these discussions in regards to large-scale platform holders like Facebook or Twitter, it turns out we all have our own individual platforms. And the ways that we use our platform when we share content with the people that we care about is critically important. This is particularly relevant in the current moment. We, as a human race, have dealt with pandemics in the past, but never before, at least in recorded history, have we had the opportunity to share information with people all around the globe with the touch of a button. This means that we have a potentially amazing opportunity to be able to solve problems quickly with tons of informed people at the helm, but also means that there's an ability for a bunch of bad information and conspiracy theories to make their way around the world in the blink of an eye as well. This particular piece talks about the power that we have with our own individual platforms and the responsibility of large-scale platform holders to get out there and do something as well. Last week for Let's and Teleplay, we streamed Hand of Fate 2, an action RPG that debuted on the Switch a few weeks ago, and it blends this sort of element of tarot with D&D. As we were exploring some of the storytelling mechanics, Intelligame contributor Jenny Wyndham was in the stream and was talking about how her husband had played the game when it originally came out a few months ago for the PC, and that he completely loved it. After we talked about the ability to play the game portably, Jenny decided that she was going to buy the game on Switch, even though she technically already owned the game. Similarly, on Friday during IG Food Friday, when I was playing Battle Chef Brigade, there were people who said, oh, I had never seen this game before. This looks really interesting. I think I'm going to pick it up. Now, whether or not those discussions turned into actual purchases, I'm not sure. And there's still a lot of discussion in the market about whether streaming and Let's Play videos have a positive or negative impact on a game's sales. Anecdotally, I feel like watching a game on stream has encouraged me to purchase a game multiple times, and I can't imagine I'm the only person who does that. But what we have to consider in this case is that our platform, our ability to share information and content with other people 
can influence their decisions. Yesterday, I watched a friend of mine play Overwatch, and suddenly I felt like I wanted to at least update my copy of Overwatch, just in case I wanted to play it. And those of you who know me know that I'm not the world's biggest fan of Overwatch. But seeing my friends having fun, seeing my friends play this game together, it made me naturally think maybe, maybe I could spend some time with it. Though gamers may have a reputation for being isolationist or antisocial, online in particular, we create a community. And being part of a community means that we influence the actions of others, and our actions are also influenced by others. This is one of the inherent powers and dangers of what was deemed Web 2.0 years ago. The idea that it wouldn't just be people who had made their way through gatekeepers who could create content on the internet. It could be anyone who could leave comments, who could share their opinions, who could create blogs. As our world blew up with a ton of different opinions from a ton of different people, we learned and we grew, but we also took on some really bad habits as well. Recently in the news, we've had a lot of discussion about deplatforming folks who are voices for hate. People who use their platforms to spread what is now commonly called misinformation, but what used to be commonly called lies. The inherent vulnerability in our system, or the inherent vulnerability in human communication as a whole, is that once a message reaches your senses, you can't do anything to stop receiving that message aside from removing it from your senses. If somebody puts a sign in front of you and you see it, you can't just choose to not read it. If somebody is yelling around you, you can't choose to not hear that message. Similarly, in social media, when somebody hits the share button and the algorithm of your platform of choice decides to put that information in front of you, if you haven't gone through and created the blocks, the conditions, the whatever necessary to prevent that information from coming to you, you will consume it. Now, naturally, you have the opportunity to, quote-unquote, do your research, to look around and figure out, well, did this game really deserve the scathing review that this person gave it? Did this particular YouTuber or Twitch streamer really say something that scandalous? But in the process of having this discussion, whether or not things turn out to be one way or the other, even just providing that discussion room to breathe gives it power. This is a discussion that I had in an earlier episode of Intelligame Radio called Shining Light or Fanning Flame, trying to figure out whether or not having a discussion about a particular topic and the manners in which we were having that discussion was trying to spotlight a particular issue in the hopes of drawing attention to it, or if we're fanning the flame, are we actually creating a space in which whatever that situation is grows? As we deal with the ever-increasing spread of what is colloquially termed fake news, we have to understand that the things that we say have power right when we say them, regardless of whether or not that thing turns out to be true. Laura Hudson, culture editor for The Verge and a personal friend of mine, recently wrote an essay about the deplatforming of a rather significant internet bad actor. I want to read a couple paragraphs of this article because I think they're particularly significant to those of us who live lives on the internet. Hudson writes, 
Facebook VP Andrew Bosworth wrote in a memo titled The Ugly that leaked earlier this year, Maybe it costs a life by exposing someone to bullies. Maybe someone dies in a terrorist attack coordinated on our tools. And still, we connect people. The ugly truth is we believe in connecting people so deeply that anything that allows us to connect more people more often is de facto good. The ugly truth is that this isn't the truth at all. It is something uglier and far more uncomfortable. Everyone involved in amplifying the hatred, bad faith, and bullying that has infected social platforms and now the nation is partially responsible for the ugliness of the political and social landscape before us. That it is their and our responsibility to take responsibility and the sort of action that most powerful purveyors of information once used in the past to give no quarter to the bad faith voices that seek to stoke hatred, undermine equality, degrade democracy, and upend the very notion of truth. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, Josh, have you gone a little bit far afield? Because this seems pretty different from you playing a game and somebody going to buy it later. Well, I don't think they're that different at all. You see, the most powerful tool that we have on the internet, as far as I'm concerned, is the share button. When we share, when we retweet, when we regram, we're using our personal platform. We're using our personal credibility and spreading it to people who know us, who ostensibly trust us, family members, friends. When we share that information, there's an automatic acceptance of a certain amount of credibility if the people who read that message trust you. They may be much more likely to take action based on that information you've shared, regardless of how much you actually know about that experience. This is something that even I, as somebody who has created on the internet and been in these online spaces for a long time, still feel like I've underestimated and been shown I've underestimated on multiple occasions. Imagine that your brain has some guards staffed at the front door, and those guards have to process all the information that comes at the front door, and then they get to determine whether or not that information can get let in. Well, your brain guards are more likely to let in the folks that they know and trust, regardless of what they might be bringing in. And your brain guards are also more likely to shut out people that they don't know or distrust or have been conditioned to distrust, regardless of what they are bringing in. Also, I think the brain guards get a little tired after they've been doing guard duty for two or three or four or 20 shifts, and sometimes things just slip through the cracks. The brain guards are, I mean, it's still a job, right? What we have to understand in the end is that we are part of a community on the internet, that we are both creators and consumers, whether we're members of chat or video creators or people who just lurk and hit the share button on our social media platform of choice. What we do affects the people who are connected to us. When addressing what I would term the villains of the internet, the, as Laura said in her article, the bad faith voices that seek to stoke hatred, undermine equality, degrade democracy, and upend the very notion of truth, I think it's helpful to go back to Hudson's article to read the next paragraph on the recommendation of what to do about those situations. 
This paragraph is following up on the subject of the overall article, which is the removal of Alex Jones, a right-wing propagandist on the internet from multiple social media platforms, and his, at the time, lack of removal from Twitter. While many, including Dorsey, that is Jack Dorsey, CEO of Twitter, seem to fear that striking Jones down from media platforms will only make him more powerful, media manipulation research lead Joan Donovan at the Research Institute Data and Society tells The Verge that throughout her work, she has observed the opposite. Once you remove the biggest megaphones from bad actors, their power diminishes and their ability to attract larger audiences and sow disinformation decreases. Instead of promoting no-holds-barred speech, he might instead embrace the principles suggested by Boyd and Donovan in their case for quarantining extremist ideas. All Americans have the right to speak their minds, but not every person deserves to have their opinions amplified, particularly when their goals are to sow violence, hatred, and chaos. But there is a flip side to this as well, and that's what we do when we see sources of positivity, of light, of good energy, of the opportunity to try and make positive differences. And that is where we use our platform, where we hit those share buttons, where we tell our friends and our family and whoever about these things. Earlier, I described this penchant that we have as people to gravitate towards the opinions of people that we trust as a vulnerability. I didn't call it a problem because I don't inherently think it is. We have to pay attention to and understand the ways in which we communicate with each other and the ways that we take information on ourselves. But there are so many representations of beauty and positivity and love and peace and progress and just a general excitement that are things worth sharing and are things that we should be excited to learn about from those that we care about and trust. I would hate to think that the only way that we could make progress in society is to dull all of our senses, to harden our hearts, and become even more resistant to the people around us, many of whom actually do care about us and about the world and want to see progress and growth. When I first heard about Twitch, I didn't want to spend a whole lot of time with it because I thought it was just people talking about a bunch of drama and a lot of screaming. And there is still a lot of screaming and people talking about drama on the internet. But these spaces also give us an opportunity to grow amongst other people, to learn about things that we wouldn't have found out about before. I've watched streams of glass blowing, of sewing, of cross stitch, of knitting, of any number of creative ventures that I will probably never do myself, but still really appreciate watching, not just to see the art in progress, but also to be part of the community of people who value those skills. We do have the opportunity to signal boost some real terrible things, but we also have the opportunity to signal boost what we love. Being conscious of the tools that we have is critical to success in a world where many of these tools are shaped by people who are concerned less about us finding happiness or prosperity or positive community and are more concerned about creating a system that continually keeps us coming back for another hit. Yes, we can hope that the creators of these platforms will take the correct actions to make these spaces safer, and hopefully we're seeing some of that trend already. But we also have to realize that 
they're not the only platform creators. We are too. And the roles and responsibilities that we're hoping they will take on are ones that we have to take as well. Whether we're massively successful influencers or just somebody who happens to have a Facebook page that we share with our friends and family, we are all owners of platforms right now. We all have this power to help spread the word, whether that word is positive or negative. And of course, as was once said a little bit in a comic book, with the great power that comes from these tools comes a great responsibility for us to use these tools properly. Let's continue to push for increased accountability and responsiveness to combat issues of hate and oppression and outright lies on the internet. But let's also make sure that we're using our own personal platforms for good, setting an example to those around us and to those above us on how we can make this world on the internet a better place. And let's also share some really great games too. It's interesting thinking about the ways things have changed since that piece. For one, Laura Hudson doesn't work at The Verge anymore. She's currently working in TV and video games. But I think particularly about Alex Jones and how it really does seem like he has less power since he has less platform. For all the hemming and hawing that was taking place at the time, it does seem that actually removing that opportunity to spread bad information does have some significant results. And I can't really knock that. This last piece is a little bit complex to think about in the current moment, but I still think a lot of it holds water. This was something that I put together after attending a triple set of events in New York City, Practice, Game Devs of Color Expo, and Games for Change. I was really thankful for the opportunity to be able to attend all of those events, and they gave me a bit of perspective because they're smaller, targeted audiences as opposed to sort of the broad-scale impact that something like E3 or PAX reaches for. This was also recorded on Amazon Prime Day, where a number of workers were protesting around the globe, hoping for better working conditions and for an opportunity to express the grievances that they had towards Amazon as a company. Now, even though I've made my statements about Amazon in the past, and I still stand by a number of those today, we also have to acknowledge that for a number of people, Amazon provides a critical service in this moment. They provide a wide range of goods, which can be shipped all over the globe, and of course, receiving anything via mail from any retailer right now is fairly difficult. But even in the midst of crisis, we have to look at the opportunities around us and try and aim for something better. Amazon is able to provide its critical service due to its workers. And by thinking about the ways that we can make life better for those people, not just in this current moment, but moving on after coronavirus has hopefully been resolved, we find opportunities to make a better world for everyone. This piece goes into the ways that learning from smaller targeted communities can give us lessons that we can expand out to the world at large. When you're working in games media, some of the most exciting events take place at the big blowout shows. Things like E3 or PAX, places where there's a lot of money, a lot of attention, and a lot of hype. There's a value to those experiences, but it's hard to sometimes see 
those experiences push the needle in terms of social justice, in terms of increasing diversity, inclusion. So this year, I wanted to spend some time attending events that were a little different. And I found that attending things like practice or games for change or Game Devs of Color Expo in particular gave me this opportunity to see how to start making some of those real tangible changes in the space that I love. This is a topic that's been on my mind for quite a while. A couple months ago, I gave a talk at the Oregon Game Studies Conference at the University of Oregon, and I spoke to the ways that I felt that small communities can enact change. And I think that's particularly important because it may be difficult for us to see large companies enact the change that we want. When you're a whale, you get to set the tone. For instance, look at Amazon Prime Day, which is today. You might know this if you've already loaded up your cart and whatnot. The entire industry is shifting around Prime Day, with multiple locations having what they're calling Black Friday in July events, which never happened before. Black Friday was in November. And I think it still is. But retailers know that people are going to be out looking for deals on Prime Day. And if they can get in on that sale action, they're going to go ahead and do so. One of the things you may not have known about is that there's a large multinational protest taking place right now, as multiple Amazon workers are on strike to try and raise the quality of their working conditions. In solidarity, many folks on the internet have called for a boycott of Amazon services and products. Not just Amazon.com, not just Prime Day, but also places like Whole Foods and even Twitch, which is owned by Amazon. They're asking that for at least today, people make a change to be able to make their voices heard. And this is one of the powers that we frequently have as individuals who don't have access to large amounts of money or political influence, or corporate power. Of course, whether or not any of this will actually result in tangible changes from Amazon or any of the companies that work under Amazon is to be determined. But one would hope that by having small groups strike out and say these are the ways that we will affect change, it would make a difference. Let's go ahead and apply this to the game shows that I've attended over the past few weeks. Practice, Games for Change, and Game Devs of Color Expo are all smaller communities than what you'd see at E3 or PAX, and yet they're able to take their own tone on what they want to focus on, who they want to bring into the fold, and also set ground rules about what is acceptable conduct in those spaces. When people go into these smaller, curated spaces, they have an opportunity to refine the ideas that they want to take back into the larger overall game space. When you attend practice and learn about the experiences that other game designers have had creating their games, encountering struggles with narrative difficulty, then those experiences inform you when you create your large-scale game that may make its way onto an E3 stage one day. When you go to Games for Change and you have an opportunity to learn from and meet other people who are doing wildly different things in the game space, working on topics of neurodiversity, or creating new peripherals so that people without limbs can still play games, those also inform your experience. When you go to Game Devs of Color Expo and you see an entire space that is centered around people of color, 
that gives people of color an opportunity to be platformed and speak for themselves, and also an entire range and gamut of different games, socially active aware games to just plain fun games. It changes your perspective of what it means to be a person of color in the space. All of these situations are powerful, and all of these situations are important, but to be able to learn from those experiences, we have to pay attention to them. And I'm lucky in that I was able to physically attend these places, but for folks out there who don't know that they're taking place, for folks out there who don't have the ability to learn from those experiences, it becomes that much harder to even realize that there might be ways to change our actions our conduct, and to improve our space. It's kind of similar to how if you didn't know that Amazon was being protested today by many of its workers spread across the world, it could be really difficult for you to protest Prime Day in solidarity if you don't know that there's a protest taking place. Now, this isn't me saying that if you've purchased something on Amazon, you've done something terrible. IntelliGame's main live stream right now is on Twitch, and I, in my immediate vicinity, can see at least two boxes that have the little Amazon arrow on them that were shipped to me fairly recently. The very nature of consumption of any product, of any medium in the world we live in, is complex, difficult to wrap your head around, and multi-layered. In many cases, there's no escaping the idea that there's some sort of larger scale power that is benefiting from the actions of small communities. For instance, each of the three shows that I just mentioned are tied to large scale organizations. Games for Change is run by a 501c3 nonprofit that has been running for a while. They also are running their event out of the New School, which is a pretty large scale, kind of fancy place in New York City. And they have a number of members on their board of directors, ranging from all across multiple industries. Practice, though it's a small, targeted game design event, is hosted by NYU Game Center. And NYU Game Center is one of the more prolific game schools, and NYU as a whole is a fairly well-off financial institution. Game Devs of Color Expo has some pretty large money sponsors, like MailChimp, and Xbox, and it's possible that in any of those situations, people could have issues with any of the larger ties and larger powers behind what takes place at those events. In these cases, I look at the changes and spaces that are created by the smaller shows, utilizing the power of money or institutional influence as a tool. I look at the way that Game Devs of Color Expo prioritizes accessibility, designating gender-neutral restrooms, making sure that the talks are both live-streamed and closed-captioned, and also providing opportunities for volunteers to be compensated for their work, as well as for showcasers to be able to show their games in front of an audience for low or no cost. It does take some sort of power for us to be able to make change in the world. Perhaps it's when that power is aggregated in mass too much. When the people who are utilizing that power are significantly disconnected from those who they're supposed to be using it for. This will be discussed a bit in an upcoming video on the IntelliGame YouTube channel, 
but I think it's also fairly evident to see how that works playing out on the world stage today. As we watch what feels like a farce of an event play out between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin at a summit in Helsinki, we have to see that there are some large powers that perhaps choose to remain out of our reach. Still, we have to utilize the power that we do have available to us and the abilities that are given to us by those who believe in the work we do to be able to start making some of those ripple effect changes. Take a look at the ways that games on the AAA space have evolved and grown since the indie space has come up. We've seen more representation for people of color, for the LGBT community. We've seen more opportunities for stories to grow and blossom. But that didn't start in AAA. It started in the indie space. It started with individual artists deciding that their priorities were important. It also started with the democratization of tools that allowed individual creators to make really polished, really exciting, nuanced games, or for creators to be able to make their games without needing to know a bunch of code. But I digress. Talking about these small and large-scale events, I don't feel like there needs to be one or the other. I believe that we should have both, that there's a space for the glitz and glamour and excitement of the Nintendo presser at E3, and there's also a place for the calm, quiet discussion of mechanics and personal feelings at practice. That there's a space where people of color can come together and get excited about a shared experience at Game Devs of Color Expo. That there's a place for potential government officials or doctors or scientists to be able to have discussions about the ways that they can use games to help save lives at Games for Change. Each of these different layers are important, and running in their own silos, they do important work. But I believe that if we can find more ways to have our experiences inform each other, to have some of these smaller, targeted conferences where people are experimenting and taking risks and listening to each other, if we can have those experiences inform up the chain, then we all stand to benefit. And hopefully, we can speak truth to some of these larger sites of power. Again, I don't know what impact these strikes and boycotts of Prime Day will have, but I know that I personally own a lot of Twitch gear. Shirts, hoodies that have a Twitch logo on it, and I really want to be proud of wearing that logo. Just a few days ago, I ran into somebody at the airport who I would have never talked to if we weren't both wearing the same Twitch hoodie. We had a fantastic discussion about Twitch and our experiences, and she told me about how she was attending the wedding of the streamer whose community she's been a part of. That's an amazing experience, and the tools that we have through Twitch and the access that we have to the world marketplace through Amazon is really beneficial. But those benefits do come with a cost, and we have to be cognizant of the ways that those costs play out not just for us, but for many of the people who don't have the benefit of being visible when they're paying the price. So let this be an opportunity to change your habits a little bit. Take some time to do some shopping at a smaller retailer. And if you're going to pick up some games, look and see if you can find them on itch.io or GameJolt before you search on Steam. Some of the ways that we can enact change just have to come from changing our basic habits. Inertia is really hard to shift, 
But when we look at some of these smaller organizations that are setting the tone for how we can be better, well, we can be better. One of the interesting things that I think about after reflecting on that piece is the likelihood that none of those events will take place in person this year. Practice, Game Devs of Color Expo, Games for Change, many projections say that we'll need to be practicing pretty solid social distancing well on through the end of the year. What this has meant historically for game events and what it will likely mean for each of these events is that they'll be hosted online. There have been a number of really great events that have taken place online already, and even just this week, there'll be another one that's hosted on Steam, Ludonericon, that starts on Friday. I think one would be hard-pressed to say that a global pandemic has a silver lining, but one of the positive outcomes that have come from the ways that people and communities have responded to COVID-19 is that it's created a broad scale of accessibility for a number of targeted events to the world at large, by providing talks that can be archived and shared out amongst people, there's an entire new set of knowledge that's just sitting and waiting for all sorts of people in the game scene to be able to learn from and to be able to take into their own projects. Now, I have no idea whether or not Amazon Prime Day is still going to happen this year, but I would certainly hope that after all of the ways that we have seen just how important the work of the people who are in those warehouses has been to our society, that we'll be able to find some ways to make sure that they're adequately represented and taken care of. And though Amazon put together a $25 million fund to help its, quote, employees and partners, unquote, deal with COVID-related financial issues, we also have to acknowledge that, one, it's $25 million coming from one of the richest companies in the world uh, that's owned by the richest man in the world. And also Amazon like pays no taxes. So okay, you can probably handle that 25 mil easy. And two, a one-time fund in response to a global pandemic is good, but it doesn't represent the kind of systemic change that's necessary to protect those workers, not just now, but moving forward, when something after COVID happens, whether it's a situation inside a warehouse or another global catastrophe, we need to make sure that we're thinking about the ways that we can build society to be better for those who haven't always had it so great. We can look to small communities. We can look to the guidance of those who have been marginalized as an opportunity for us to reshape things for better for everyone. Well, folks, since Jenny's off this week, it looks like you're stuck with me for our game recommendation. Even though the quarantine has given many of us time for pause and reflection, it's also hard not to think about the future right now. Society seems primed to change in serious ways here in the U.S., fueled by issues like massive unemployment and what will soon be even more significant amounts of medical-related debt. It's made me think of a game that we've streamed multiple times for Intelligame. Perhaps on the grand scale, this is a story about societal disruption, about corporations and governments and the ways that unchecked power can create significant consequences. But on the small scale, and truly at the game's core, 
Tacoma is a game about us. The people who exist being pushed and pulled by these large-scale influences, and the ways that we move forward, even in a world seemingly set against our success. In Tacoma, developed by Fulbright Studio, you play as Amagioti Ferrier, or Amy for short, as she explores the abandoned space station Tacoma. Set in the year 2088, capitalism has taken to the stars as megacorporations shape the world with powers rivaling national governments. Tacoma is owned by one such company, the Venturis Corporation, an entity trying to create space-based vacation homes. As you search the station to download the onboard AI left behind, you also find the recordings of the events that took place on the ship prior to its abandonment. The six crew members come from different backgrounds, are connected to each other in various ways, but are all in danger after a meteor hits the station, destroying their communications module and leaving them with just over two days' worth of air. As you play the game, you move about the station, watching recordings of each of the crew members and Odin, the ship's AI, in augmented reality. Hologram versions of the crew move around parts of the station, working, talking with each other, and eventually trying to develop an escape plan. Like a movie, you're able to rewind, pause, and fast-forward these recordings, which allows you to move between different rooms and hear the varied conversations from different groups of people. But even if the escape plans might be the main driver of the plot, the human connections are what compelled me to keep pushing forward in the game. Life feels a bit like that for me right now, too. I sometimes find it hard not to be overwhelmed by the sheer size of the daily conflicts going on around us. I watch the news, read Twitter, and hear about the ways that various governmental and business forces make the decisions that will affect me and my loved ones far more than the legislators who are involved in the brawling. In the face of seemingly overwhelming odds, it might be tempting to lose hope, to just sit back and wait for something to happen. But in Tacoma, the crew bands together because they're motivated by the love they have for each other. They know that, even if there's a big bad system out there doing damage, they have people right in front of them that they can make a difference for right now, and that gives them the motivation to push forward. Amidst the tragedies and nonsense of the current moment, I've seen so many people spring into action to help those around them. One of my neighbors has been sewing face masks nonstop for weeks, a friend is buying supplies that are in high demand and then dropping them off at shelters. Even just staying in to help contain the spread of COVID-19 is an action we take to help support others, regardless of whether or not the government in that area has shelter-in-place orders up. We're trying to find ways to get through this together. Tacoma underscores that idea. Now, there's plenty that I love about this game as a whole. It's diverse cast, it's stellar writing, it's meta-narrative about corporations and the need for unions, discussions about artificial intelligence and what personhood is, not to mention the ways that a lot of its discussions feel ripped from the headlines if you pay attention to companies like, oh, I don't know, Amazon. But when I think about the moments of this game that stick out in my head right now, it's the ones where I see a group of people-shaped polygons gathered around a table to celebrate obsolescence day. It's the ones where an awkward operations specialist tries to figure out how to court the woman he's fallen for. Where a couple talks about the ways that the plan they've come up with could potentially go wrong, but still find time to show their love for each other, likely in multiple ways. 
It's the man calling his husband and son back home, hoping he gets to see them again. It's the woman sharing a heartfelt moment with the ship's computer, learning about herself and the AI too. Systems are important because of the people they support. Making equitable, diverse, inclusive government and economies is about supporting the people who live and work in those economies, in those cities and states and countries. It's about the individual stories we all weave in our lives. Tacoma is a great reminder of that. You can find Tacoma right now on PS4, Xbox One, PC, Mac, and Linux. Alright folks, that does it for another edition of Intelligame Radio. I've been your host, Josh Boykin. You can find me on Twitter at Wallstormer. Keep an eye out for more Intelligame content by swinging over to the homepage, Intelligame.us. Or you can find us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at IntelligameUs. If you want to support the efforts that Intelligame is putting together through live streams and podcasts and all those different kinds of things, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. You can sign up for as little as a dollar a month and help keep all of this work going. Currently, we're donating our Patreon funds to charity, splitting them between City Meals on Wheels in New York City, and an effort to get personal protective equipment for providers in Seattle. For more information about that, or to help donate, you can go to patreon.com slash IntelligameUs. That's patreon.com slash IntelligameUs. Now, keep an eye out on this feed. On Friday, you're going to see a special bonus episode featuring a sort of breakdown of what we've been playing with me and Jenny. And then also keep an eye out on our other feed, Intelligame Club, where we will have our roundtable discussion of half. You can subscribe to those discussions by going to intgm.us club or by searching for Intelligame Club wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for your time, everyone. Until next time. Keep Intelligaming.